Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle. No, we're not in Zurich. We're in London. Sorry, I'm so, so used to saying this, listeners. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay. Coming up, Andrew Tuck is here. Emma Nelson, of course, you just heard. Andrew Muller is also here. Andrew Muller, maybe just tell us. I mean, the script says we should talk about 2023, but should we even talk about the last week? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's hard to even think about 2023, 2022, having been what it has. But I think my personal highlight of the year was probably getting to take the foreign desk on tour. In particular, uh, the memory that sticks is watching one of the foreign desk's producers, Emma Searle, shushing an unruly presidential entourage uh, so we could get an interview done with their boss. Very good. Also, we're going to be heading to the Balkans to speak to our man there, Guy Delaney. Guy, what's up there? I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be celebrating Croatia's Schengen status, cheering my Slovenian Eurovision neighbour, and raising a glass to Šlivovica's UN recognition. Wonderful. Have more from Guy a little bit later, probably from Ljubljana today. It's the 11th of December 2022, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. Well, good morning, listeners, from a London which is completely blanketed in freezing fog this morning, as the tag just said now, uh, live from Zurich. We're live from London uh, today, but uh, old habits uh, die hard. Uh, as Emma was saying a little bit earlier in our intro, it is the Monocle Christmas Market in London, day two, uh, and it has been absolutely rammed. Yesterday was a record day for us. Sun was out, however, uh, absolutely stunning day, uh, no, no sign of uh, freezing fog yesterday. It's a very very, very different morning uh, here this morning. But I think the city will come to life. It's hopefully going to to brighten up a little bit uh, later. And uh, maybe we'll also, of course, uh, be talking to to Santa. Haven't seen Santa yet. Uh, am I not sure? Did you swing by at some point yesterday or, or not? I was somewhere else yesterday. So I was en route, um, hoping to have sort of crossed Santa's entourage from Ravignemi. Uh, missed, missed him in the sky, so I only assumed that he was hard at work here. Um, just And just literally cannot wait to see him. What I am massively anticipating is when he comes and joins us around the table outside because it is the one time of the year that you can give Santa the proper monocle treatment. So you can say, look, I know it's all nice things and sugar, thing, you know, sugar sticks and elves, but seriously, we need to talk about infrastructure. We need to talk about import-export, cost of living, production, and this is where you sort of can really put your foot on Santa's windpipe. Absolutely. And also Santa is really out here doing the Finland soft power moment as well because he has some technology this year. He has, of course, I mean, he is from Finland, so they are reasonably teched up. But he had um, a screen going yesterday as well where he was actually showing a live stream of what was happening up in Rovinimi as well. And it is just completely snowy, sugar-coated. It's perfect trees. Um, it, it's really sort of a, rem- a remarkable um, landscape, Christmas-scape. But, I mean, Andrew Muller, I mean, you, you would sort of be rather annoyed if you were a parent, though, weren't you? Because here's, like, Santa upselling you. You think it's enough <laughs> that you've come to the Monocle Christmas market at Midori House. And then he's, like, trying to get you to buy a Finnair ticket up to Roivanemi. Uh, he is very keen on selling Roivanemi. Uh, as I discovered yesterday, we, we interviewed him uh, for the Foreign Desk, our Foreign Desk Christmas special next Saturday is very heavily Finland-themed. It also features a former president, a naked ambassador, and a choir of shouting men. It literally has everything. Oh, um, an average foreign desk. Well, exactly. Um, we did ask him some pretty searching questions, uh, you know, Santa Claus, if that is your real name, etc. But yeah, he, he's, he does not miss a chance to sell visits to Lapland. 
No, it's uh, it's quite something. He was talking. That is just the the bounce back has been incredible. He said that people are coming from not just all over Europe, all over the world, and it wasn't just a sort of a, you know a bit of Santa PR. He, you know, and because uh, you probably sort of gathered this. I mean, you've I think you've chatted him to him over the years as well, Santa. And I mean, he's a he's a proper businessman as well. I mean, you mm. you sort of really feel that you know if they lost a trade minister down in Helsinki, Santa could probably step in. <laughs> well, there was a, I mean, it is that thing behind all those beard that that wonderful whisker. Um, there's an incredibly sharp business head. It's astonishing. He's, he's, he's one of those people who you would naturally assume would be, it's all right, it'll sort itself out. But no, he's, he's, he's got a keen, uh, a keen eye. Andrew, I know that you've, you've talked this week about how there's, obviously we have the real Santa with us mm, this morning. Obviously. The real one. But the other ones, the pretenders, there have been issues with supply shortages of Santas, haven't there? There has been a, a supply issue with Santas in various jurisdictions. There is a huge Santa shortage. Try saying that three times quickly at this hour on a Sunday. There is a huge Santa shortage um, in the United United States in particular, and a Santa school in Scotland was reporting that it was down to one student. Well, listen, I can understand the U.S. side. I mean, who'd want that job in the U.S.? Because it's just litigation heaven, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Santa, you know, let not, you know, can Santa put a sort of a foot right or a hand right? I mean, goodness. So I think you can get that. But, you know, sort of, you know, Scotland, I, I would think it's not Finland, obviously. But, you know, but maybe there I could sort of understand because I think we have a little slightly different relationship with Christmas still on this side of the Atlantic. I'm not sure what your what your take is. Uh, the view apparently from the people who are professionally interested in Santa supplies is that there's a there, there is a lot of um, there's the litigation issue in the United States. Uh, I read an interview with a an American Santa supplier who made the point that you know treading delicately. Budding Santas tend to be fairly overweight gentlemen of a certain age, and that cohort is reluctant to interact with the general public en masse Higher still. health risks. Uh, no, for, for, exa for exactly that reason. But I can't understand. And I, this is all new to me insofar as... Do you need to go to Santa school? I mean, I, I don't I mean I'm just wondering how hard it could be. I'm just looking at the, the, the issue in Scotland, and there's a man called uh, Stuart who wants to make sure that children still have the opportunity to, to see Santa. Uh, I mean, just looking at a picture of him, he doesn't look massively Santa-ish, but maybe that's because he's a facilitator. But if we were to... I have a piece of scrap of baby. If we were to just quickly pull together what the key attributes of a successful Santa may be, do you think we'd actually need to set up a school, or are we missing a business trick? I mean, there's ability to sit in a chair for, right. qu for quite long periods. Okay. Tyler, do you have any thoughts about what Santa might have to do? Well, I mean, listen, there's there's probably there's there's probably the basic physical attributes <laughs> as well, which again, that could also land you in sort of litigation heaven. <laughs> um, well, you uh, could as, just get a cushion. Yeah, you could get a cushion. I, I think you do need a few extra kilos okay. as a starting point. But, I know you, but you, you almost certainly can't advertise for that, can you? What, for the kilos? Well, maybe you yeah. could, because uh, maybe extra kilos is more inclusive today than fewer kilos. Yeah, that's quite mm. good, true. I mean, and beards are very fashionable. So we're on there. So, okay, so, we, so we're, we're dealing with that. But in terms of the skills you possess, sitting down, brilliant. B being able to behave yourself with children on your lap, possibly. Pa so come with a requisite, you know, come with the paperwork. Patience, I think, is yeah. is going to be big. Mm. I know that Andrew Tuck spoke about the, the inability to, well, the... the the fact that you don't need to leave the seat at any point throughout your entire session. So so the call of nature doesn't need to be answered if you're Santa. Surely Santa's allowed a bathroom break. Well, I don't know. Health uh, and safety. Well, I want to go back to the point about adding kilos. What about sort of sub subtracting kilos as well? 
We were in Dakar this week. Uh, we, <laughs> we were, went on the Dakar diet. <laughs> we, we were on the Dakar diet. So this is quite interesting. So we were there for uh, Chanel's Metier d'Art show. It's, and, and of course, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of catering and that goes around all of these events. But we were sort of you know, amazed that, um, that popcorn featured. Po- very, almost thimbles of popcorn were, were on hand for French ladies, models, um, and anyone else who wanted to join the Dakar diet. I had a lot of sympathy for anybody who'd been employed either as a caterer or a waiter or waitress at any of these events because so much of their hard work went unappreciated. Because after about, when you, you were, you'd be at these wonderful do's and there would be a tray of the most exquisite mm. food brought round. Tiny, tiny portions, but so, so perfect. And even that, in the Dakar heat, admittedly it was 30 degrees, so you don't have an enormous appetite um, and there was quite a lot of drink going around but there was there was that sense after you know when when this woman had brought around this exquisite untouched tray of food for the 13th time and you would look at her and she would look at you and there was just a general memorandum of understanding that the game was up here and she may as well just go home and put her feet up but okay so we're, we're 96 hours uh, since i think you touched down maybe that's 72 no 72 idea. plus anyway very very quick trip mm. about 48 or 72 hours for all of us uh, to Dakar, it was your first time in Senegal. Yep. Impressions, uh, if you if you look back. Impressions are, I've never seen so many land cruisers in one location. No, we said, Andrew day. Muller, we said, this is, <laughs> uh, you know, again, if you wanted dream gig to set up your own distribution business, you, you'd want to be a Toyota distributor, a Toyota distributor anywhere in Africa. It was the, the case because they'd, they'd organised shuttles between various locations mm. of this enormous jamboree. And what would happen is that if you wanted to go somewhere, a, a land cruiser would be made available to you with a little number on it and what have you. But what I, what we couldn't, what I couldn't quite understand is not only the volume of land cruisers that they had possibly acquired. I don't know if Senegal had any other land cruisers during that week. But I also, think, I mean, it, within the whole sort of, I would say, Sahel region, I mean, I, I don't think there are any land cruisers left. They, <laughs> they, they, they all, they'd all descended on Dakar. But the, the, the two automotive signifiers of that part of Africa generally are land cruisers and also uh, Mercedes-Benz saloons of a certain vintage. Both makes a vehicle which appear to be completely indestructible. They were in a... Actually, I think maybe we were talking about uh, taxis and stuff like that. Mm. The taxis in Dakar would dream of being Mercedes, <laughs> clapped out Mercedes. Well, and that, but also, but also I think Peugeot's as well. I mean, so... The, was it was the, was it the Peugeot six was it the six oh five or I, I'll have to I'll have to look it up but there's that iconic Peugeot that you remember on on French streets as well and they all got shipped off to to the likes of Senegal and they're I mean they're real proper old beaters but they're still doing it incredibly I mean held together literally by gaffer tape mm-hmm. so this is something that you you know it's it's an adventure. Everything is an adventure. What I found amazing, though, was the ability for the Land Cruiser drivers and indeed everybody to navigate what is clearly a city that is not built for cars. Um, there are huge, great boulevards, which obviously are very useful to get to sit in in a traffic jam. But if you are in a Land Cruiser, you are crammed into car parks, which are probably not much bigger than this studio. And yet untouched, these enormous beasts of vehicles would just edge forward, edge back, edge forward, edge back. And it was, an, it was a joy, a rather dangerous joy, admittedly, to watch people navigate the traffic. No, it really, really quite something. Any other lasting impressions? Um, the building that we were in for the work that we had to do was one of the most exquisite places I've ever been to in all my days. It, it's it's one of those places that you walk in and you you literally have the intake of breath. And it is the um, old 
Palais de Justice, the old uh, the old courthouse of of Dakar that has been uh, that Chanel have have ploughed a lot of money and care and love into, and they had transformed the outdoor space, well the sort of central courtyard. Um, it was just this wonderful maze of pillars, and everywhere your eye was stretched, this indoor outdoor space was arguably you could never imagine it as a courthouse. You could only see it as a place of extreme creativity. Well, what, what was interesting, I think there was something quite deceiving about it as well. And our Fernando Augusto Pacheco, he was, he's there, of course, everyone, our listeners will know he's Brazilian. And he sort of also felt he was just one step closer, uh, of course, to Brazil, of course, uh, you know, Dakar, Rio, not being too far apart. But you walked into the space, Andrew, and there was something about it as well, because it was so airy. We're talking also, when we say old courthouse, you're thinking, mm. you know, maybe early, early uh, colonial times. But this is, we're talking about French modernism um, and, and really something quite remarkable. But a space that would create a certain level of serenity and zen as well before you were probably going to be, uh, you know, you, you're, they were going to obviously <laughs> yeah. sort of uh, read you how many years you were going to uh, be behind bars. Yeah, I had my makeup done in what was clearly an old courtroom, uh, well, which was bonkers. Court, yeah, or, or some type of detention. <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, not much lipstick, I suspect, was applied and, <laughs> and not many curling tongs were, 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 well, not for any nice reasons, I suspect, were sort of produced in the room that I was in. It, it, was, it was quite astonishing. I quite liked the backstage catering. Yes, that was fun. Was that was that more generous than the thimbles full of no popcorn? less probably uh, pro- yeah. pro- probably probably. Well, Tyler, Tyler and I went because we went on the Dakar diet, which was basically nothing until eight o'clock, and then four packets of chips. Yeah, that was it, wasn't it? We with, 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 with a champagne lead in uh, <laughs> as well. Have you have you spent time in in uh, in West Africa? Uh, I have spent some time in West Africa. I've been to Mali and to Cameroon and Cape Verde and. I oh, think, okay. You're showing off. I now. think that's. I think that's about. <laughs> Morita- Mor- did you say Mauritania? Yes, you did. I've not been to Mauritania. Okay. No, it was Mali. Um, Cameroon. I do have a, a special fondness for, as incredibly, really, the only country I've ever been thrown out of. Okay. Well, okay. Why were you thrown out of that? Were you allowed to? Allowed to <laughs> uh, no, Absolutely. This, 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 this was. This was some times ago. Some time ago, I, I had been travelling with a. A, a rebel group of sorts um, who the government are, are displeased with. This is the whole schism in Cameroon between Anglophone Cameroon and Francophone Cameroon. Um, and the organisation at the time was very much committed to non-violence. This was an English-speaking group, which is why I was interested in them. But uh, no, I, I got uh, I got uh, detained while in their company and I spent a, a, a reasonably agreeable weekend, to be honest, being locked up um, courtesy of the gendarmes before I was... Well, deported's a bit dramatic. I, I the, the very first time I was walked I, to the aircraft. It, I was, but from the moment I was arrested and they had to deal with various sort of levels of Cameroonian authority, the point I kept reiterating was, "Look, I think we all know how this is going to end. You're going to lock me up for a few days and yell at me a bit and throw me out of the country, and fine. But I've already got a ticket for a flight on Sunday evening. So if we could all work towards slinging me out on the flight I was leaving on anyway, I think that works for everybody, and that's what happened eventually." Um, I, I do actually quite recommend Cameroon as a, a reasonably decent place to get banged up if you're going to be. The level of prison hospitality in Cameroon, can you just, you know, you, you're checking in. It, it was it was actually all right. It was I, I think it was two or three nights initially at a police station uh, in a town called uh, Kumbo and then the military prison in Bamenda. Um, but the... the the officer in charge at the military prison, he said all the things you want to hear, like that he'd just completed a, a doctoral thesis in, in human rights in the military. It's like, good, pleased to hear that. Did um, he pass it? I didn't ask. <laughs> I, I just thought, like, his heart's in the right place. Uh, the, the food wasn't bad. Um, 
Yeah, they, they they let me leave the door open at night. Um, it was it was well. I mean, as I said to them, it's not like you know. What am I going to do? Run away into town and blend into the background? I, I you know, seriously. But, it, but if I have to, if I have to get up in the night, you don't want to be woken just so you can let me out of my cell. No, heaven forbid. <laughs> Seems so civilized. It's a nineteen. Uh, sorry, it's nine twenty uh, here in London at Midori House. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay, Andrew Muller, and Emma Nelson is here. We're going to be heading to Ljubljana in a moment um, for to speak to our uh, guy Delaney. But uh, just uh, Emma, just uh, just market. What are you looking yeah. forward to when you wander around the market today? Uh, right. Okay. So it's the usual. Um, <coughs> It's the usual treats. I'm looking forward to Santa. I am looking forward to being given the Rack eagle Yes, we're coming to that. It's been on my mind because obviously because of the Dakar diet where you basically you just don't eat anything in order to get yourself into whatever you're going to be put in. Um, now the diet's off. So when I, I departed and headed to, to Germany over, over the last couple of days and basically just exploded the Dakar diet, there was Spitzler. There was an enormous cake. There was chips. There was uh, what else was there? There was just absolutely everything. So, so we sort of exploded the Dakar diet. So we will be looking to rec- forward to reclat, and I'll always also be looking forward to seeing old friends. It's one of those times where you know you all say we should see each other more often. We should spend more time together, and then you don't. But then Christmas comes around again, and there will just be so, you know loads of warm embraces. Indeed, look who just stuck into the studio, uh, just uh, crept in. No, no one, no one saw him arrive. Uh, our, and our Andrew Tuck uh, is here uh, this morning as well. Good morning. Andrew, uh, good morning. How are you? Well, we're we're very well. Uh, I'm. Uh, I don't know whether the coffee's helped or there was nose spray, all kinds of things. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I've been fighting uh, a, a bit of a cold, but uh, but actually feeling all right this morning. We were just chatting before you came in, Andrew. Uh, what, what was Emma looking forward to? You were manning. I mean, actually, well before people should really be drinking uh, warm wine, but you were right there yesterday morning, bright and early. On the glue vine uh, stand, maybe just some, we haven't had some proper impressions of the market yet. So, how was it yesterday? Well, it was pretty amazing, wasn't it? We, we, we saw the numbers last night because we we tally how many people have come through, and it was a, a, a really a record crowd. And it was fun running the glue vine in the morning because we, we we thought we'd open it at twelve, but then our COO Anna said, well, "I don't know, maybe we could get going a bit early." So we we stoked up the old uh, heater, and we were selling glue vine from uh, just after ten o'clock. And they shifted straight away. People just saw that glue vine, could smell the smell the fragrance, and it was straight over. So, so we had an amazing time, and it's just great seeing all these conversations with people. You know, we have people flying in to London to come to the market. And I was saying to Andrew was, uh, earlier on when we saw each other this morning that the other sweet thing was the number of people I spoke to who said, oh, we, 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 um, we've brought our kids here to have their picture taken with Santa. Oh, great. Uh, we've been doing it now for like seven years. We've got seven of them up on our wall. And you think, my God, we have been doing this market for a, a long, long time. And it's become part of their Christmas traditions to come to the market, to see Santa, to see the reindeer. So yeah, I thought it was just a wonderful day. Well, And, and here's the remarkable thing as well, is that uh, we, were just, we were chatting quite a bit about Santa uh, earlier on, Andrew. And also, when Santa gives you a positive report card, because he said, you know, Santa does a lot of markets, and you know, he's all over the place. But he said, this is his last major gig before he heads back up to, to Roy Vinimi, and he's got to get the logistics going and meet and greet everybody. So he said, this is last, but he said, this is, he said, this is his favorite market in the world. And he said, just because, he, Santa was talking about the quality of discussion, 
Uh, so I'm not sure if that's the sophistication <laughs> of the gifts that kids are asking for or what the parents are saying on the sideline. But it is one of those moments when it is Santa saying this that uh, I know you still you feel sort of more than a little bit sort of warm and fuzzy because um, obviously you know, I don't I don't think Santa's telling tales. It's quite a grown up market. It's 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 not one of those Christmas markets that we're all used to. I mean, there's there's too much cashmere for it to be a sort of a, 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 a glue a glue vine and all you can eat chips and curry worst kind of thing it's it's so i think santa is quite right to finish this session with a little bit of elegance absolutely there's definitely a lot of children who've got better looks than i have that's it that, i was i was i was obsessing over some of the like three-year-olds with like cooler jackets than any of the the, the pair <laughs> the parents so an amazing but uh, <laughs> santa because santa's next to the the glue vine stand i'm not, not sure if he requested that but um, i did hear at one point somebody engaging him with a conversation about finland and uh, I think he was about to try and exchange business cards with Santa because he was like, oh, well, we've got friends up in that region as well. So he was like handing over a card. So. And if, Andrew, have you been up to it, to, to, uh, to Roy Vinimi? Have you been up to no, Santa's Village? No, I've never been that far. I've never been to Santa's Village. Have you? Uh, I've not been to Santa's Village. I've never been. I mean, I think I've been that far north somewhere else in the globe. Uh, but no, I've not, um, I've not been. But I, I, we were saying earlier, he, he had this live stream. And he was just, he was just, he was, and he yeah. was showing everybody. And so I'm also just wondering if there's going to be a spike in, uh, in, in Finnair uh, ticket sales uh, as, as well today. <laughs> Do you think I, he comes with a retainer? I mean, he doesn't need Finnair, surely. He's Santa. Well, no, he doesn't, but no, but I mean, no, of course. I mean, he can obviously get here under his own, uh, his own steam. Um, but, uh, but certainly, uh, I, I don't think he's sort of laying on the sleigh and reindeer for everyone else to, to get up there. I mean, yeah, we'll be tired that he's, you know. I just saw you. What, what were you clicking? You were just looking at Finnair, at the new business Finnair. class. Where are you going? No, I'm not going. <laughs> Anyway, I was actually trying to remember, just to establish and try to remember, that I was wondering what kind of livery that were Santa to be sponsored. Oh, yeah. That whether we'd go for, you know, the navy and white look. Absolutely. It'd be cool. What would you think? Well, speaking of navy, well, I was going to say speaking of navy and white and, and red, uh, who was watching the football last night? I no, was. You and? Uh, it was, I, I went to a Christmas party uh in my approximate neighbourhood. I watched the first half at home by myself and the second half in a room with lots of increasingly dispirited people. Uh, it was it was quite weird. It was it, it went from being quite raucous and rowdy to very silent very quickly. There was... Um, I, I mean, a, a missed penalty is always really strange, but when the person fails to even get it broadly within the goalpost area, it, there's the, the bathos of that moment is, is quite something to behold. Andrew, did you... Uh I, I, I watched the the end of the game, and uh, it's 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 just awful. To, you know, you know, I'm not a big f- football fan, as you know, but uh, you can't help but get caught up in it, and and just watching the kind of the draining away of hope in those final minutes. You know, Marcus Marcus Rashford came on the very end, and there was an opportunity, mm. but you could see that everybody was just like pained at what was happening. But anyway, that's football. Andrew Muller, is there any metric? What would have happened if? England had one. Do you, is, is there any sort of index that you could look at and say, what would Christmas spending have looked like today? Would you have seen a 3% jump, a 5% jump? What do you think? Well, let's go to the streets of Paris and Marseille and Toulouse. What do you think happens today in France when you suddenly have this little moment of euphoria that aren't there yet? Um, I, I think that there's been research done into this that yeah, when, when there is a sense of general euphoria, people do feel like celebrating. So, like, I mean, just at a at a imminent level you can imagine last night had harry kane landed that penalty and had england gone on to win the thing in extra time or heaven forfend on penalties it would have been probably a pretty good evening for any publicans restaurant owners uh 
you know, just last night. I think that you know, it's it's it is really weird to think that you know, Harry Kane scoring that penalty into Roque probably cost the UK hospitality industry a a not small amount of money last night. Not wishing to add to the poor fellow's woes, I'm sure he feels bad enough. But that is a weird thought. No, I don't. Well, if we sort of look ahead as well, of course, we have France against Morocco, and I was also thinking all of the planning that has to go into this because then you think if I'm the security services now in France, what you know, what type of seriously though. <laughs> What type of thing? I mean, you know, we saw what happened. You know, we saw what happened in Belgium when when Morocco won, um, and and there were riots and burning cars in the streets. Uh, I, I can't imagine uh, what one has to plan for in Paris later, well, later I, this I, week. I, I mean, I, I I suspect I'm not the first person to have made you know abstruse comparisons between the progress of this Moroccan team and and historical events of some centuries ago but if morocco do somehow get through this thing not only will they have done that which is an astonishing accomplishment by itself they on the way they will have put out portugal spain france and belgium that's like <laughs> that is that is morocco's wildest fever dream just like i i don't even know what the australian equivalent would be probably knocking england out four times i'd imagine but and the manager's only been in post for a hundred days hasn't he it's just yeah. he just just arrived which means that he He's probably experiencing the fever dream, but also just thinking, where do I take it from here? Yeah, it's, it, it, it is an astonishing story. I, I, I don't think they're going to be able to go all the way, but then I didn't think they'd get this far. It is lovely. There's one thing that I did pick up on in some of the papers today, which is looking, going just briefly back to the way that England's defeat is being handled. I mean, looking at this, the Sunday Times is like, it's all over again, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But the front page of the, Daily Tele- the Sunday Telegraph had this incredible photograph of Harry Kane absolutely distraught beyond words having his face cradled really really closely by gareth southgate the manager and i thought that was one of the most wonderful images you could Mm. possibly have because what you don't want to do is hammer hammer anybody when they're down but the intimacy and the tenderness of this photograph between Mm. these two men which which was such a grown-up and adult way of approaching this we'll also speak of adult as well i mean compared to of course the match the night before argentina of course versus the, the netherlands and and sort of you know uh, you know all kinds of um, you know odd and funny gestures uh, going both directions. It was also quite gentlemanly last night as well between France and England uh, as well. Very very different from watching Argentina and, uh, and notably different in tone between Argentina and the Netherlands. I love the Argentina and the Netherlands game because I am always of the opinion that there is no sporting event that is not massively improved by a bit of a punch up. Indeed, it was great. Just gone at nine thirty uh, here in London, ten thirty on the continent. Uh, a variety of different times uh, around the world. At bottom of the hour, Emma Nelson has the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. There's been fierce fighting in southern Ukraine as Russia launches drones at Odessa. And Kiev, however, is mounting a strong resistance in Melitopol. More than one and a half million people are now without power in Ukraine as Russian drones target energy facilities. Thousands of shops and businesses in China are closed, even though people choosing to stay at home are deciding to do so, despite the lifting of many coronavirus restrictions. Among an expected rise in the number of cases, infected workers are quarantining at home and other people are deciding not to go out because of the risk of infection. And Australians have used a four-letter word to describe Lego's new set for depicting the country. The Lego Creator postcard set, released on January the 1st, has different versions depicting different countries. The UK has London and Big Ben. The Chinese version has Beijing and the Great Wall of China. Australia... Well, it says Australia rather than any city and shows an outback scene of a windmill, eucalyptus tree, (laughs) desert flowers, a kangaroo, road sign, a cockatoo 
and a shed. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler. Well, I, I'm, Emma, thank you for that. I'm glad that Andrew Muller's here. Andrew, is, is, is that fair? Is that trying to please everybody? Are, are people going to be angered? Uh, some, 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 somebody's gone to stock images here, haven't they? They've, ju- they've just they've just tapped Australia into an image database, and that's what that's what came up. It does illustrate what I do think is a really interesting. Um, Emma's just found it for me. <laughs> it, there's 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 such a strange cognitive dissonance in Australia's self-image because. That's kind of what the world thinks of us, but it's also like what we like selling to the world, the idea that we are this nation of rugged, crocodile-wrestling outdoorsmen, and we're not. We're one of the most urbanised societies on earth. We as Australians are fundamentally a nation of urban middle-class latte slurpers, but we do like, at some level, the idea that we are basically Crocodile Dundee. So where did this idea, would this idea have come from, then? Um, I, I suspect it's... I'm just putting my glasses on, listeners. I'm keeping you up to date with what I'm doing. That's just amazing. No, I, I'm I'm absolutely convinced somebody has just gone to an image database and tapped in Australia, and that's what's come back. So yeah, I think it's, it's a lot of not very creative people working at uh, Lego HQ in uh, in Billund. Uh, I I would say um, it's just at nine thirty-two. We're going to head to Ljubljana right now. Uh, our Guy Delaney, our Balkans correspondent, is there for us this morning. Good morning, Guy. Good morning, Tyler, and good morning, everyone. Sounds like a packed house. It is a, it is a packed house. Uh, yeah, all of your favourite people are here, at least all your favourite people from the world of Monocle Radio uh, are here. Guy, where uh, where do you want it to start uh, this morning? If we were flipping on uh, the airwaves, if we had our stack of, uh, of papers from the region, uh, what are people looking at talking about this morning? Well, I want to talk about Croatia. I'm, I'm a bit gutted. We seem to have moved on from the football talk. No, we're coming back. Relax, relax. I thought, we're com- I thought we're that was back very unusual for Monaco. But hey, okay, I'll, I'll hold my fire on yeah. that one. Well, I've been going through Croatia's border over the past couple of days, uh, to and from Zagreb, from Ljubljana. And as usual, it's the shenanigans of having to whip out your ID going through the Slovenian checkpoint, then again going through the Croatian checkpoint and the same rigmarole back the other way. And you just got to hope the lines aren't too long. And they are in the summer. They're desperate. But they're going. They are absolutely going, disappearing, hopefully for good, from the 1st of January because Croatia's uh, been granted membership of the Schengen area. That all went through in the EU this week and uh, borders are melting away. So just to tell us about that, was it, um, did it sort of look like a done deal? Because here's what's remarkable. They disappear from January 1st. We're not talking mm-hmm. January 1st, 2025. Uh, it's happening you know, in, within the span of, span of weeks. Um, First thing, does this, are there going to be job losses as well? So all of those people, will they be re, they'll be reassigned to Europe's Frontex or or something else like that. That's my first question. Um, but yes, did everyone just see this coming? And and is there sort of a little bit of feeling somewhat self satisfied uh, that Croatia uh, got through on this one, uh, like they have, of course, um, in the World Cup so far uh, mm-hmm. versus Bulgaria and Romania. Yeah, it, I think it, we. I thought it was a done deal quite some time ago. There have been various announcements that, yes, Croatia is joining Schengen. And then, whether it's been a bit of previous on the part of the Croatian media, or whether it's been the EU doing its dotting I's, crossing T's, and finding new letters entirely to cause people problems, um, it all eventually came down to this meeting of interior ministers um, a couple of days ago. And it, it suddenly became a little bit perilous, because all these noises were coming out of Austria, suggesting they were terrible 
terribly unhappy about the irregular migration along the Balkan route, and they wanted to hold somebody responsible. And as it turned out, the people they held responsible were Bulgaria and Romania, and not Croatia, which is, in effect, the last country before you hit the current Schengen border, uh, which is the one with Slovenia. So uh, the Croatia seems to have impressed on everybody in the European Union that they are able to manage the external Schengen border. That hasn't gone down brilliantly with human rights organisations. They're saying that the reason that Croatia has Im- impressed the EU in this way is because it's not very nice to people crossing the, uh, the border into Croatia, that it's been pushing back people who have been claiming asylum status, that it's been treating them with disrespect and in many cases with violence. Um, so that hasn't gone down well at all. And in terms of jobs and what happens, at the moment, yeah, sure, there's a lot of infrastructure between Croatia and Slovenia and, and, and I suppose as well between Croatia and Hungary, and then the Slovenian border is the one I cross the most often. But um, those jobs, a lot of them will go to strengthening the border forces because it will be uh, the external border of Schengen now will be, say, Croatia-Serbia, for example. And that's going to have to be strengthened, especially with all the noises coming up from further in Central Europe saying how unhappy they are about uh, Balkan route migration. Guy, we're going to have to keep it um, quite crisp uh, this morning. Uh, new city, new format, uh, new new pace. Just uh, let's talk about football very, very, very quickly. Um, I don't know are, if there's such a thing as, as bookmakers uh, in, in Croatia uh, or, or Slovenia or in the region in general. How, how are people feeling about Croatia's chances? They were feeling pretty bullish even before the match against Brazil. I was in Zagreb on Friday to, to watch the match. This was not a, a it was not a personal trip. It was a professional one. I thought it was going to be sitting down and sending a few text updates through to a website, and then suddenly it became a lot of live TV and and a lot of angst over various technical things working or not working, uh, and going from venue to venue and seeing how people were following the, the match. And and of course, you know, Croatia won penalty shootout. And if you want to know what that does for hospitality, as Andrew was suggesting, I would say it does a lot of very good things for hospitality because we ended up in the streets near Svetni Turk, Flower Square in Zagreb. It's a really miserable, wet, cold evening and the pavement bars are absolutely packed full. Um, that's that's the effect that, that winning a World Cup quarterfinal against Brazil has on your hospitality trade. Very good. And just on, on, on winning, just before we go, um, incredible news about who your neighbour is uh, vis-a-vis Eurovision. This is Chris Gushtin, who was a member of the band Joker Out, who are a young oh, yes, band I from them. Slovenia. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, they, well, Joker Out, they're, they're a bit of an unusual case. They've actually reached arena status in Slovenia, which is, is fairly good going in a country of two million people to actually be able to appeal to enough people to sell out an arena. Um, but any sort of ex-Yugoslav band to make arena status now, most of them are heritage acts going back to the 70s or, if you're lucky, the 80s. So they're really creaking at the, at, at the joints, all of these acts. Joker Out of you know, at least in Slovenia, they're big news. And they have been designated as Eurovision, the Eurovision entry for Liverpool next year. So there's no public contest. Slovenia are fed up of getting knocked out in the semi-finals because of a, a terrible choice by the public vote. They're taking no chances and they're going for the number one act in the land. And Chris, my upstairs neighbour, uh, occasional guitar partner and owner of my old monitor speakers, uh, <laughs> will, be, <laughs> will be representing Slovenia in Liverpool, which is, of course, my hometown. Very good. Guy Delaney, our man in the Balkans, in Ljubljana for us this morning. Thanks for that. 9.38 here in London. We are going away for a short break. When we come back, off to Dublin.
Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design, and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity, and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. You're back with a special edition of Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé, here uh, in London. Uh, time to head to Dublin uh, right now. We're going to uh, be chatting to uh, Mark Hennessy, uh, and he is the news editor at the Irish Times. Uh, Mark, good morning. Good morning, Tyler. So tell us, uh, if uh, we were cracking open, uh, yes, uh, your front page this morning uh, over a very nice uh, hearty breakfast uh, somewhere in <coughs> the Republic of Ireland, uh, what stories would we be looking at this morning? Well, we've done, in the Irish Times, we've done a poll of attitudes uh, to a united Ireland on both sides of the border, both in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And it's part of research that we'll be publishing over the next month. It's the most detailed uh, piece of research that has ever been done uh, on an all Island basis. And many of the findings are, uh, are quite fascinating. And I can run through them, uh, the main points, uh, briefly for yes. you, if you wish. Um, we have a four to one uh, majority in favour in the Republic of Ireland of the idea uh, of a united Ireland. Yes, in Northern Ireland, contrary to what my people might think, there is a two to one majority against uh, the idea of a united Ireland. A fifth of Catholics living in Northern Ireland do not want it. And it goes on on, on that basis. Um, quite, quite extraordinary figures uh, in, in many ways. Um, in particular, we th- there are some worrying findings as well, which is, one of which is that 18% of uh, people who declare themselves as Protestants say that they would find the idea of unity, quote, almost impossible to accept uh, if it were to be brought about. Now, if you look back to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, One of the things it said is that there would be a responsibility on the British Secretary of State of the day to to, uh, carry out a referendum on unity in Northern Ireland if the Secretary of State at that point believed that such a a referendum would pass. Now, we have a curious... split in this particular poll in that it's showing in Northern Ireland that there is actually a majority in favour of holding a referendum within the next 10 years. But as of today, two to one of the people who would vote would vote against it were they uh, to be given uh, a choice today. So that makes it a very difficult um, concept uh, for people, to, for, for any British government to decide in the future, because you have a democratic, a declared democratic will, as it were, as shown by this poll in favour of a referendum, yet the agreement states that a referendum should only be held if the Secretary of State believes that such a referendum would pass 
because the very holding of a referendum would be extremely divisive and, and would certainly concern politicians on both sides of the border and police services on both sides of the border. Uh, Mark, just to tell me, uh, this this body of work uh, that, that you've commissioned, um, commercially, this is being um, sort of drip-fed uh, across the coming weeks uh, to keep... Uh, readers riveted uh, and to to be clicking and 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 buying more uh, buying yeah. more papers or no. or or is it is it an all you can eat buffet that uh, you're also offering it up for one sitting as well no i i have to say our motives were considerably more innocent when we were sitting down and deciding on this uh, we have a huge volume of material we had thought about putting it out uh, sequentially but frankly our audience would be um, uh, hit over the head with a hammer uh, repeatedly because there is just so much volume in, uh, attached to all this. So what we've done uh, over uh, last week and uh, this week is uh, tease out material and to allow for it to actually enter into the uh, arena in a way in which it can be looked at seriously and debated seriously. And it is provoking um, some uh, quite interesting debate both here in Britain and there has been a considerable interest as you can imagine uh, within uh, uh, the within America particularly within the Irish American community because we are looking at uh, next year being the 25th anniversary uh, of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. It's all being set against the backdrop of Brexit. Um, many people believe that the whole constitutional issue was largely settled uh, post Good Friday that we could have uh, established and functioning government in Northern Ireland, which frankly we haven't had, but nevertheless, uh, uh, everybody was part of the European Union. The border issue had been decided. Uh, Articles two and three of the Irish constitution, which had laid a physical claim to Northern Ireland had been removed. And then Brexit came along and basically everything has gone pretty much pear-shaped since then. All of the uh, uh, parameters that people were working in have been removed. The border has become a a significant issue, again, in terms of Anglo-Irish relations, in terms of trade, and you've seen all the issue about the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is all because of the existence of the Irish border and that you can't have either physical uh, installations along the border or even ones that have a, a more a place more in in the mind rather than uh, on the ground. Uh, If we end up in a situation where uh, the the border becomes a a part of the consciousness again of people on the island, then that is not going to be a good thing. And the British have been trying to, you know, uh, well, haven't been trying, uh, the European Union more accurately has been trying to square the circle whereby they can ensure that the Republic of Ireland remains a full member of the single market and the European Union. And yet at the same time, we don't have a situation where uh, goods can be brought into Britain, then brought down south into the Republic and somehow brought back into the continent uh, of Europe in a way that would be significantly injurious to the the European Union single market. So it's a circle that everybody has been trying to square uh, since 2016 and so far, and nobody has managed to do it. Mark, I just want to talk about maybe um, one of the, at least a, a positive blip uh, that when we think about Brexit um, and maybe a bit of the windfall that, uh, that Dublin and, and Ireland in general have, has, has experienced. And that, of course, is uh, migration, uh, migration of, of, of talent um, as well, knowing the role that D- Dublin plays um, in the tech sector. You know, great that talents come in, but it's also caused a bit of a housing crisis um, as as well. And I'm wondering what that uh, what that looks like uh, for Dubliners. Yeah, 
Well, the, the, the housing crisis wouldn't be caused by um, uh, incoming tech workers. Uh, we do have a housing crisis. We have had one uh, in various iterations for perhaps 20 years, either ridiculous house inflation during the boom and so-called Celtic Tiger, uh, where you know things went completely insane, to a situation then where construction collapsed. Uh, we still have a, a younger population than the, than the continent of Europe, so we have people wanting to start new families, new homes. So we have an inbuilt demand. And then obviously we have the, the pressure uh, created by um, people coming uh, to work here. And that has been hugely difficult. And now, uh, obviously, like every other country, we have asylum seekers coming. Those numbers had been at a fairly controlled uh, uh, state uh, before the Ukraine crisis. Uh, they've gone through the roof uh, since uh, Ukraine, at least in Irish terms. We've taken in about 70,000 uh, Ukrainians. It's costing the Irish state about a billion. And it is creating huge... Uh, it is one of the things, I should say, that is uh, that is putting pressure on um uh, public attitudes uh, and and support and you saw the wife of the ukrainian president talking about ukraine fatigue there there would certainly be support for ukraine in ireland at a public opinion level but yet when uh, there are people who are on the far right uh, and elsewhere on the political spectrum in ireland who are trying to use this issue to create division at local uh, level. Now, so far, every time they've tried to do it, they've had some initial success on the ground, and then people sort of step back and, and say, mm, don't really want to go there. Uh, so it tends to, to peter out. Uh, we've had this example in quite a number of places uh, around the Republic, and and so far that has generally been the uh, the outcome but there's no doubt that if we you know with a bad uh, winter in ukraine to come uh, there could be extra numbers coming to ireland and as of now the irish state is actually unable to deal with more people coming in we have a public controversy here at the moment on the west of ireland near limerick city one of our major cities where uh, over a hundred men now they're not ukrainians they're uh, international protection applications many of them coming from africa who have been living in tents uh, for the last week uh, in, you know, minus three, minus four uh, temperatures with faulty heating and it's become a considerable state embarrassment. And uh, the state obviously is trying to fix that at the moment, not hugely successfully. But we are going to have more examples of that given the kind of pressures. And the government has been trying to get the message to Ukraine in slightly stuttering ways that, you know, if you come to Ireland today, then our ability to look after you and put a roof over your head is an awful lot less than we would like it to be but nevertheless it, that is the reality that, that there there actually is this christmas no more room in the inn um, and i'm wondering how much of that is also being used uh maybe as as a slightly defensive pr as well uh that this trickles down and uh, and of course the government not being able to cope with it uh and and certainly not wanting to be to be yeah. you know, on the back foot uh, as well that they hope that yeah whether, whether uh, of course refugees then uh, look look back towards the uk or elsewhere well, yeah, there's no doubt that there are uh, PR elements uh, to all of this. And you could argue that if they were trying to do PR, that they haven't actually done it as well as they could have. If that's the, um, they, they haven't been proactively um, driving this message uh, towards the Ukraine. It's been more of a trickle-down effect. But, you know, we, we, we simply do have a housing crisis in Ireland. Now, I'm 
just for international listeners, I want to stress it's not caused by refugees. We have an, an, a, a, an entirely native creation. We have too many young people looking to start homes and we don't have enough houses being built. And we have a sclerotic planning system. We have all sorts of issues within our construction industry at the moment in terms of not having enough workers, uh, getting planning uh, decisions through and then getting finance. So there is there is a um, the, the main element of this is a construction led problem and uh, successive government frankly have tried to figure out different ways of sorting it uh, without a huge level of success and we now have the latest attempt by the government next week where they're doing a complete reform of the planning laws which will make it more difficult to object to planning applications and that you know clearly is one of the issues that we have in a common law system where if a planning application is put in then people are entitled to challenge it and we've become expert at doing that and there's no doubt that there have been consequences uh, because of the kind of delays that have been built into the system now people who put in those planning uh, objections will make the point well you know we wouldn't putting in we wouldn't be putting in applications if builders did their job right and we also have a history of builders when they've been left to their own devices in this country uh, running a coach and four uh, through uh, uh, the planning laws and building stuff that we've had to deal the, con- the social consequences of which we've had to deal with for 30 and 40 years afterwards Mark Hennessy, uh, news editor of the Irish Times uh, in Dublin. Thanks very much for that. Uh, just 9.51, um, Andrew uh, Tuck has appeared. You hear the, the rustling of, of papers over there. Andrew, just go back a couple of pages. I saw you, so you, you sort of, you're looking at the Telegraph there. I, uh, I just saw the words metaverse in a big ad. I'm like, who bought that massive ad in, in, in the newspaper? It was a couple of, couple of pages back. I didn't I didn't quite see it. Maybe, maybe you sort of... I will, uh, you, I will have to have a look you, for you. you went past it. What, um, what's I, in the paper this morning? I did see a very good um, piece of fly posting though, in, in Soho the other day, which I took a picture of, which is, it says, have you been fired by Meta or Twitter? If so, scan this barcode. And when you scan the barcode, it's come and work in Lithuania. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a direct link to the Lithuanian tech, uh, tech setups. And they're, in, they're encouraging people, obviously, lots of creatives wandering around Soho wondering what to do after their dismissal by Twitter. And they're, they're luring people with fly posters next to, like, you know, fly posting for bands and things. There it is. Come and work in Lithuania. But this is, and, and do you, I mean, obviously, you don't just have to get to the barcode to find it, or did you, did you click on the barcode? Or, or does it say this is it, it, brought it, to you by... I, I think it says... It says um, Perhaps move to Lithuania in small letters at the bottom. It says, have you been fired by Twitter or by Meta? That's just, the headline. And then when you, I, I scanned the barcode, and it t- takes you straight through to recruitment for Lithuania. I mean, which is really uh, re- remarkable from a, a recruiting program. But also maybe think when we were in, in the U.S., rather the opposite. I mean, this is such a positive message, you know, come to Lithuania, where there are all those ads that we were watching on TV, you know, all of us up at all odd hours saying, you know, have, you know, were you serving it at, at Fort Lejeune or Camp Lejeune in the United States between 1983 and whatever? Um, and were you exposed to sort of toxic runoff? Please call this lawyer. We're going to sue your pants off, um, <laughs> which is sort of, which is which is rather different. Um, what else? Uh, what else have you seen in the papers caught your eye this morning? Um, well, I, I don't think we want to go into it, but the, of course it's the the, the the filter of this damn royal story that rattles on and on, which is just everywhere and everyone picking the bones of it. And you know, I, I don't think in the UK that it's gone down particularly well. A horrible time to land something on your family like this as well in the run up to Christmas, uh, mean spirited, just in the still in the wake of the Queen's death, and 
And most of the papers, I think, this morning are saying there's a, a lot of things that just don't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. So one of these things is uh, Meghan Markle said that she was given literally no instructions whatsoever. And it's been revealed this morning that she was, in fact, given a 30-page dossier with contact numbers, with protocol, with who to speak to about anything she ever needed. And there was loads of assistance given to her. So it's just this. And, and I... I, I it, what's strange is that program must have been watched by the Sussexes again and again and again to make sure that they approved of everything. But I think they're so blinded to their appeal that actually this awful thing of her mocking curtsying for the Queen has been played again and again and again and again. And what's so strange is that she must have watched that and thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. And that, that, to me, that, that, that just marks how out of touch you are with, you know, with people. And I think just also when you turn the, the pages and you see... It's stories about people going to food banks, nurses on strike, all of these real concerns to genuine people that somehow the the woes of two very fortunate people in many ways uh, are on the front page seems also a bit disgusting as well. Andrew, just uh, putting it in context uh, for our international listeners who are not picking up all of the papers, is anyone coming down on on the side of the Sussexes, giving them a bit of sympathy because I mean certainly the Times have it out for them, the Daily Mail have it out for them, um, yeah, and uh, yeah. If you look elsewhere in sort of at least the print landscape, I think there's 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 an uh, uh, an attempt to grapple with what it must have been like for him as a, a kid to lose his mother and the relationship that she had with the press and the filter that put on it, and the fact that you know, these two brothers went through life trying to you know, protect each other. Well, William trying to protect Harry for many, many years. And then it, it became more complicated as they became, moved into their 20s. But that they had a, this amazing bond, and that's the thing, the, the thing that seems a tragedy. And I think there, there, is, there, is a, there was a, a piece yesterday in The Telegraph saying that uh, by a writer who's become very friendly with Meghan Markle, saying that actually they're just a very straightforward couple and, and don't try and read too much into what, what's going on. If you met them, they are, they are on screen what you, in, the same in real life. But so I don't think it's, it's particularly, I don't, I don't know, I didn't find it that personal. I think it's just people have had enough of it. Mm. It's, 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 it's not looking forward. And I think the, the, one of the most interesting pieces, which I read actually, uh, is in Variety in the US, just saying that, you know, it's, uh, it's a terrible piece of TV. And also for the, the Sussexes, it's just awful that they, 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 they've, they've changed their contract. They've, they've changed the contract with the press in the UK, for one with the you know, American streaming giants, who are just as demanding about how they dance to their tune. And in fact, that they, they can't look forward because the only thing they have as currency to sell is, is rehashing this, this story again and again and again. And unless they pivot quickly, they're going to be in a bad position because there's a limit how many times you can tell this story and in how many ways. And Andrew, we were talking just um, at the end of the market yesterday as well, a story that, of course, has bubbled up. I believe the Daily Mail broke it, but there's obviously the BBC going out of the front foot uh, within this story as well. Uh, Royal correspondent Nicholas Witchell, also Michelle Hussein, um, BBC's, uh, of course, Today program, one of their, one of their key anchors and, 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 and news anchors as well, saying that, you know, a bit of a recollection issue as well, where, you know, of course, we have Meghan Markle coming out and saying that everything was completely staged during this famous sit-down. Um, and, and quite odd for a news presenter to go out and say, um, actually sort of a rather sort of different view than as, as we saw it. And then also a recut of the interview as well, you know, where, where both Meghan and Harry sort of look at each other a bit sort of cross-eyed, which 
didn't didn't happen. Um, so of course that's been a big story as well, re-editing and recutting all of this. You have this interesting situation now where a news outlet such as the BBC decides whether to get involved or not, and and whether you just you know that old Michelle Obama when they go low we go high. Does the BBC turn the other cheek at that point and say? Say what you like; it will go a day. Or does it roll its sleeves up and get and get um, and, and get involved? And I, also, I, I was just going to say that William has always begged that this 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 terrible interview with his mother by Martin Bashir is never played again. Now that's that's up to the BBC. But also here in the Netflix program, they're accused of using the clip without any without any the permission of the BBC. And also, that seems another provocation to his brother. Absolutely. Just Andrew Muller, very quickly. Are you going to watch it? Tuning in. Uh, I, I can't think of anything I'm less likely to do. But I, 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 I do I do always get the sense that underneath all sort of royal scandals and brouhaha in this country, people are kind of just enjoying the show enormously. Indeed, Andrew Muller, Andrew Tuck, Emma Nelson. Thanks very much. Also to Guy Delaney uh, and to Mark Hennessy over in. Dublin. Today's program is produced by Reese Jones and Emma Nelson, our studio manager here uh, in London, has been Adam Heat. Monocle on Sunday is going to be back uh, next week. A little bit of a check in from Tokyo, I believe, till then. I'm Tyler Brilli. Have a good week. Goodbye. Hold up. 